Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. I really like driving. For me, that sensation that I'm sure most 16-year-olds initially have when they first receive their license has never worn off. There are still times, even though at this point in my life, I've been driving longer than I've not. I still can't believe that I get to drive. I vividly remember the first time I drove to school on my own and how I watched the clock all day, ready to get back in my car and drive some more. And I'm not even into cars, really. I know very little about them. Like I said, I just really like the act of driving. Driving has played an important role in my life. It's often acted as a coping mechanism with life's stresses, but also as a means of bonding. For example, my youngest son and I are always the first to wake up on the weekends, and our morning routine has been since his birth to drive around while the rest of the family sleeps. And of course, I spent a lot of time listening to music while driving. My first car was a 74 Super Beetle, and it was pretty unreliable, but for the most part, I really loved that car. I mean, it was pretty much a glorified go-kart, but man, when it was working, it was great. Now, because Volkswagens of that era didn't have ACs, during those hot summer months in Georgia, I really had to have all the windows down and utilize the vent windows. And because of this, it was a real necessity to listen to my music at a fairly loud volume. The summer of 99 was the first summer that I could drive, my favorite record to listen to that summer while driving was Pavement's 1994 classic, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. If you've never listened to gold sounds while driving with the windows down, I don't know what's wrong with you, and I really think you should do some self-reflecting. That was also the summer that Pavement officially became my favorite band, and they still are. They're part of my holy trinity of rock and roll, the others being Dylan and the Walkmen. I probably first heard Pavement around 97, 98, when I saw the video for Range Life on MTV2. And can I just say that those early days of MTV2 were awesome. It was like a 24-hour long episode of 120 minutes. But Range Life was great and thought Pavement should be a band to investigate further. Another impetus for exploring Pavement was through my dear friend Eric Moody, who I just sort of knew at the time. Eric was cool and older, and his favorite band was Pavement. So for Christmas of 98, I received Bright in the Corners, got into it, and started buying their other records. Got really into those, and then Terror Twilight came out, and I really love that record. Still one of my all-time favorites. So 99 was the year that Pavement became one of the true loves of my life. Though, this probably wasn't the best time to fall in love with this band because by the end of that year, Pavement had broken up, though at the time this wasn't public knowledge. I did not learn about this breakup until after reading an article about Stephen Maltmus's first solo record in 2001. And as much as a bummer it was to learn about my favorite band's breakup, I did really love Maltmus's new record. With further investigation on the Matador website, I eventually learned that Pavement's other songwriter, Spiral Stairs, would soon be releasing a record called All This Sounds Gas with his new band, Preston School of Industry. And I was able to listen to Wellbones from the record and really liked it. 
And I also appreciated the album title's reference to George Harrison's first post-Beatles record. So when that album was released, I ordered it from Matador. And when it arrived, I got in my car, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Uh, Hello, I'm Spiral Stairs, uh, also known as Scott Camber. lead singer and guitarist and most everything for Preston School of Industry, which was my first kind of post-pavement project. Scott Camber grew up in Stockton, California. It is during the late 80s that he forms Pavement with childhood friend Stephen Malkmus. Though their earliest releases were very much a collaboration between Camberg and Malkmus, as the band progresses, the two songwriters begin composing songs separately. Yeah, I mean the, the early pavement stuff. It, it's kind of, it's kind of. There's a few different phases of it, you know. Like the very first stuff was me and Steve and and Gary. Yeah, and then we started touring after Slan and Shannon. We started touring more, and we got the other guys involved and we always kind of lived in separate parts of the country. So we, you know, we kind of made up our songs, you know, separately. And, and Steve, Steve went through like, you know, a pretty prolific kind of time living in New York city. And, and so he would come up with songs and, you know, I would kind of just say like, all right, you know, you know, your songs are better. And I was nervous and I probably lazy a little bit. And, you know, his songs were, he was kind of more of the singer. And yeah, I mean, it kind of became more like he would come with these great songs. And I would just kind of have these little like kind of things that I was still writing that I wrote in the very beginning. And, you know, they were kind of dwarfed by the for how great Steve's songs were. But I, I was grateful for it. And like I contributed to it. And but that's kind of how it was with pavement, you know. It was, I have, I'd have a few little songs, but um, his songs were were great, and and you know, it was kind of we came, we came a, we became more of a band based on those songs as time went on. So I kind of, yeah, I just, I had, a, I had one song on Crooked Rain, you know, a couple songs on Wowie Zowie, you know, a couple songs on. Right in the corners, nothing on terror. Uh, um, so yeah, I was I wasn't really writing songs. 
to the extent Steve was writing songs. You know, I just kind of would just, I would kind of write songs when we would be in the studio. I wasn't really writing songs at home. And I think Steve was writing songs at home. And, and that's why he had more songs. <laughs> Throughout his tenure in Pavement, Camberg would continue to progress as a songwriter, contributing album highlights such as Kennel District from Wowie Zowie and Bright in the Corner's Date with Ikea. I think the early stuff, you know, like Planet, and they were just kind of like little riffs or ideas that were really simple and almost like the fall, you know, like kind of bluesy, bogey riffs. Um, but then I, yeah, then I kind of, as time went on, I started kind of, maybe, maybe I just became better at my instrument and started listening to different kinds of music and I think that's kind of how I developed more than anything. You know, I mean, I was really into, uh, New Zealand flying nun music and, you know, I was really into REM and really into the replacements and big star and velvet underground and that kind of stuff. And just really all those kind of melodies started kind of, you know, it's like, you know, it's like when you, don't really you're not trained in music you're kind of like you you discover notes as you're just playing you're like oh oh well that chord's kind of cool and you kind of make a song around a couple chords and it was hard because i didn't really know i didn't know how to read music or learned how to learn melody from just listening to records in 1998 pavement would begin work on what would ultimately be their last album terror twilight it started off as a kind of just a normal pavement, you know, with, with pavement, we would always get together after not, you know, not being around each other for quite a while after, you know, we would make a record, we would tour and then we wouldn't see each other for a year. So this was kind of the same thing after bright in the corners. We probably toured quite a bit for bright in the corners. We probably hadn't seen each other for a year and, Steve called me up and <laughs> he was living in Portland. He's like, I've got these guys in Portland who have a tape machine and let's, we can do it here for cheap because we always did things on the cheap. And <laughs> even though, even though by the end of this record, it ended up being our most expensive record, <laughs> but we started it on the cheap. We all showed up in Portland. Steve had not sent the songs to anybody, even though I'd asked to hear the songs. He still didn't do it. So nobody had really heard the songs. He had these demos and he kind of started playing the demos and we're like, okay, cool. Oh, that's a cool song. Cool. Yeah. We started playing them and I don't know, we didn't really practice that much. We maybe practiced four or five times and then went into the studio. Yeah. It just wasn't really gelling. Steve West was having a hard time kind of getting the rhythm of the song that Steve had already kind of 
envision the drum rhythm and you know like i wasn't getting the right you know what kind of it was almost like he'd written the record in his head he probably was hearing the songs and the band wasn't really uh delivering so after about a week of trying to kind of put these songs down on tape to me they sounded good you know like i thought we were kind of getting it in the kind of pavement way we do but Steve just didn't really, he didn't really like it. So we kind of said, all right, maybe we should uh, scrap it for now. And uh, so we did. And then maybe a couple weeks later, got this call from Steve. And he said, hey, you know, like we got the opportunity to use this guy, Nigel, Nigel Godrich, who was from, uh, you know, he's done the Radiohead stuff. And we really liked that record. So we were like, oh, yeah, let's do it. And the Sonic Youth people said, you can use our studio in New York. And so Nigel was like, cool. And so we went there. And then we tr- so we then we tried to do the songs live in the studio with Nigel. And uh, it was just kind of the studio wasn't really up to Nigel's scratch. And again, we were just not really vibing as a band. Nigel was like, listen, I can get a deal at this other studio in New York. Let's just go in there and we'll do it. So we we scrapped Sonic Youth Studio, went into this other studio, which I think used to be the Beastie Boys Studio. We recorded all the songs, and we actually did like put in some good performances and get it all, you know, pretty cool. And then Steve and I went over to England to mix with Nigel, and uh, there was a few extra things we needed to do over there. I think Mark came as well for a bit of it, and um, yeah, and then Nigel kind of took over, and you know. His, I think his specialty was more mixing and he kind of put in all these weird sounds and, you know, and we we kind of made it happen. It was, the next thing we know, we spent, instead of like $20,000, we spent like (laughs) (laughs) $120,000. I know Malcolmus has like said he doesn't like it and it sounds too produced. I don't think Bob likes it either, but, uh. Listen, we made we signed up to do it with a producer, and and I think we made the best record we could. There was this kind of controversy between me and Nigel because he thought he should sequence the record, and uh, I had always sequenced all the records, and I didn't like his sequence that he wanted to do. So he kind of, you know, we kind of were babies for a while, but um, and <laughs> so I got my way, and it, it turned out to be. You know, a pretty polished record, even though the songs are are really the most fucked up pavement songs I think there are. It's kind of, you know, there's a little polish to it, a little production to it that that we've never done before. And I think, you know, some people love it. Some people don't like it. The damage has been done. I am not having fun anymore Do what you do when you try what you get When you see the light come down I'll set my hope in a wonderful hospital, man We got rooms to live, room to live in Terra Twilight is released in June of 99 It's a record that's fairly divisive amongst pavement fans and is the only full-length album in the band's catalog not to include any songs specifically penned by Camberg. 
to be truthful about it, I mean, it's like I had, I did have some songs for the record, and it's just that I kind of didn't push enough to have them on the record, and and we didn't even we didn't even record them because of all the stress of trying to get the record made, you know. And I was just kind of I was. I was a little pissed off that, like, well, I kind of want to at least record a couple of these songs. Mm-hmm. But I think the stress of the record was so much that I just was like, nah, I'll just leave it. There was no real real controversy about, like, oh, Scott wanted all these songs on the record and Steve didn't want them. It wasn't, there wasn't really that. It was just a very stressful time in making a record. With the release of Terror Twilight, Pavement embarks on a six-month-long tour which only furthers tensions within the band. In November of that year, the band would play their last show before eventually reuniting in 2010. Side note, when Pavement played Atlanta during the Terror Twilight tour, they played at the Cotton Club, which was an 18-and-up venue, so I was unable to go. Needless to say, when they reunited in 2010 and played the Tabernacle, which is right above where the Cotton Club used to be, I was all over that show. And I may or may not have gotten a little misty-eyed when they played Gold Sounds. It was rough on Steve, I think. Um, I, I mean, everybody else got along. I think Steve. I think Steve was going through some personal problems. I don't, still don't know to this day what was going on, but I think he was unhappy at some points of that tour. And yeah, it made it. It made it kind of difficult. I didn't think pavement was going to end after that because every time we did a record and toured, it always felt like it could be the end. When Terror Twilight ended, I just thought like, all right, well, we'll end up doing something again and whatever. So I never really started thinking of doing stuff on my own. Really started recording a lot of songs on my own or just doing demos. And I think when Steve told me it was done, that's kind of when I was like, all right, you know, all these demos, I started listening to them and I thought like, oh, well, these are pretty good, you know, like I can, I could actually make a record out of this. And that's when I started really kind of getting into it. With Pavement officially over, Camber begins compiling songs for his new project. Maybe two or three of the songs I kind of had around the time of Terror Twilight, but the majority of more kind of new songs that uh, I had been working on. For me, I just, all my songs kind of come in bursts. I might come up with, you know, like uh, the music and then some songs I come up with all the music and then some songs I come up with like just a riff and like kind of an idea of what I want to sing about. <clears throat> and then the lyrics kind of come and I just kind of fill up the song that way. So... I just kind of started recording, just making shit up and trying to make songs out of them. And my friend Matt Harris, who became my bass player later on, he uh, he let me borrow this four-track mini disc. And so yeah, I just did every all of my demos on that. It was like forty songs, so I had quite a bit for his new project. Camberg takes the name Preston School of Industry which had previously been a reform school located in Ione, California. I think it kind of it kind of came from that song for sale the Preston School of Industry. Da, 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 da. 
that song prior to the last pavement record and um i guess i just kind of kept the name because it was it was yeah it was pretty mysterious and didn't make any sense i didn't want to i didn't want to call it myself because i didn't really know what where the project would go i kind of envision it being more of a band like another band with other with with other collaborators and stuff but it it kind of ended up just being me so but I envisioned a, I envisioned another band, really. So I kind of wanted to have a, a cool name and simple, simple as that. Uh, the reason I knew about it was because it was it was in this little gold mining town, kind of up in the foothills above Stockton. That my dad and I would we'd go play golf at this golf course, and overlooking the golf course was this old castle. It kind of had an old tower, and and. Uh, it was the Preston School of Industry, and what it, it started off as a school for. Um, I think it started off as a school for mining back in when they built it in the late 1800s, and that's why it was called Preston School of Industry. But then over time, it became a kind of a boarding school for uh, bad kids, like a pri- like a prison for bad kids for delinquents. You know, some pretty famous people have gone there, like Merle Haggard went there. He actually had a tattoo, a PSI tattoo on his hand all, all of his life. And uh, there is a couple other famous kind of delinquent kids that went there too, but I can't remember who I... Using the tracks he recorded with a four-track mini-disc recorder, Camberg brings in bassist John Erickson and drummer Andrew Borger to help finish the songs. Moved to Berkeley in like 97, and I think this was like, what, late 99, early 2000. I recorded it in Berkeley. Basically, I didn't have a band. I didn't, you know, I couldn't do anything myself. So I, I, I had started this record label with some guys in San Francisco, and there was this band called the Moore Brothers who uh, had these... There was the there were these two brothers. They would sing. One guy would sing a song, and the other guy would sing the next song. And um, yeah, so the Moore brothers were on my label, and they would play live, and they would play with these guys, a drummer and a um, bass player, who were really great players. And uh, I met up with them, and I was like, "Man, you guys are great!" And actually, one of the guys, the bass player, was played in this band that had played my <laughs> my wedding band. So I kind of knew him over time and and the drummer this guy andy he was uh tom waits drummer i think he played on a record but he was mostly his tour drummer and uh they were just amazing so i asked john the bass player i said hey you know like i'm thinking about doing this record would you you know would you and andy like you know be my rhythm section they were like fuck yeah and uh and then john was just like i also have a studio in my house and you want to record it there and i said yeah that'd be great so that's kind of how it all that happened we tried to record at gary's studio uh and and after a day we were like no so we went back to john's studio that's what it was we were going to do it there yeah (laughs) and then uh i think we mixed everything at this guy wally sound and in oakland so yeah 
But most of the stuff was recorded at John's, and it was, you know, it was just like a loft space. You know, going from like Terra Twilight with this like really expensive, you know, hundred thousand dollar studios to like back back to the like the loft to the like you know super lo-fi kind of recording situation was great i loved it i remember it being the whole process being very very easy to record and i mean maybe that was the guys i was recording with you know they they were good players and they kind of executed my ideas and kind of built on them and it felt like it felt like we did that record pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of songs. It's like we did we did all the songs from that record and the EP that came out prior as well. We did them all at the same time. And in the end, they made a record. Opening with the sounds of instrumentation being played backwards, which are actually short snippets of each song on the record played in reverse. All this sounds gas begins with well bones. And what a comforting and welcome sound it must have been for fans still bummed out by Pavement's breakup. It has all the hallmarks of a classic Spiral Stair song. Concise, fuzzy, melodic, and extremely catchy. But what sets this song apart from his past works is the use of horns mixed in with the layers of sound, a direction he hinted at on the Goodbye to the Edge City EP, released prior to All This Sounds Gas. I think where I got it from was maybe some like New Zealand flying nun bands. They would, they would kind of do it. Not really the clean, but uh, there was another band, the uh, Great Unwashed, or who else? Uh, there was another band I really liked. They had a these really great horn melodies, but that was like 10 years prior. That's probably where it comes from more than, more than anything. I did have that song for Terror Twilight. It will, but it wasn't completely finished or anything. So, um, so I kind of had it. And, and when I started really working on it for this, um, yeah, I would just, I just had the, the kind of riff and I had the, I just kind of built everything on top of it. I, like I said, I had a mini disc, recorder and i just kind of um kind of pile tracks on top of each other i have i have a problem with um having tons and tons of melodies and and i try to squash everything into one song and and i think that was one of the songs you know there's like three or four different guitars playing different kind of melodies against each other and yeah and then the lyrics are just kind of the lyrics are actually very about you know about pavement um you know i mean it was kind of about being on the road with pavement and Gina was the uh, name of our van in the early days. And um, it's kind of like, 
you know, 20 hours to go until you play your final show and kind of a sad song, but, um, but, but it kind of has that burst of positive energy at the end where the horns and the guitar comes in and, track Fallen Away, another catchy number highlighted by the song's melodic bass riff between verses. It's the same thing when you're when you're fooling around on the on the four track you just make up these melodies and I think I I, I might have made the melody up on a guitar I'm not sure but I play the bass like I play the guitar I mean I but bass is the first thing I learned. I think I kind of play it like I play the guitar. You know, bass a lot of times just basic, you know, your basic rhythm, right? But if you kind of know how to play guitar beforehand, you're like, you know, you kind of utilize some of those melodies in there and try to make up cool stuff. And then, and also, you know, like I was super influenced by Echo and the Bunnymen and New Order. And uh, there's a lot of those kind of melodies in there as well. But yeah, Falling Away was, yeah, it's just a song I made up kind of while I was, you know, be, right before making that record and very autobiographical, I guess. It's kind of an ode to my post-punk 80s kind of favorite bands, you know, kind of sounds like The Cure, kind of sounds like, you know, Bunnymen, but uh, kind of has this angst to it. A lot of these songs, the drummer, Andy, he's such a great drummer. Um, you know, I had a, I had a lot of the drum parts kind of written on this, uh, drum machine and, uh, you know, in my head, I'm hearing it like that. So I, I asked him, I said, can you try to play as close as you can to these, you know, drum machine bits? And, and of course I, he's like, dude, whatever you're playing is, is, doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, yeah, because I don't know how to use a drum machine. <laughs> so kind of, you know, he he tried to, um, there's some kind of really screwed up, you know, rhythms in there. You know, there's like maybe two bars are the same, and then it goes to this other rhythm, and then it comes back for one, and goes maybe for three bars, another thing. And so it's really, it's pretty cool how that kind of happened.
leaving behind the more anthemic lo-fi indie rock of the first two tracks is the more subdued a treasure at Silverbank. This dynasty is for real. Musician David Phillips, who like drummer Andrew Borger, had also previously worked with Tom Waits, provides some beautiful pedal still, and in combining that with the bright Jang Lee guitar lines, it gives the song a sort of country rock vibe, a style Camberg had previously dabbled in during his time with Pavement. It's what you hear growing up, you know, I mean, you hear, you hear Hank Williams, or you hear Johnny Cash, or you hear um, whatever, you know, it's just around. I grew up in California, Central California. It was it wasn't like a hick town, but it you know radio radio back in those days you you heard a lot of that old country and yeah so maybe it just seeped in and I mean of course you know like Neil Young and stuff was 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 big to us and and Dylan and stuff too so I mean it was probably coming more th- through that than it more than anything. You know, I wrote. I kind of wrote it as a um, kind of a nursery rhyme, almost like the lyrics. You know, this, it was. I was envisioning a. Uh, I don't know, maybe being like a, a kid and and in in like another time and you know where the dinosaurs were real and and yeah, the music's just kind of like this cool little. I don't know. I guess the pedal steel kind of makes it a little country. I mean, the guy that played on that on that record is was uh, a sick player he was just a, he was like a local san francisco guy and he uh he came in and and just kind of transformed those songs it was great but but it's kind of folky and i guess it started out kind of a little folky and you know c to a minor to f sharp or f to g it's just it's a kind of a cool little chord progression and yeah there's like a cool keyboard part in the choruses that kind of saved the song, maybe. Psychopedic Knowledge Of is a dark number and one of the longest tracks on the record, but it's not tedious and doesn't meander. As the track progresses, it continues to build, eventually climaxing into a cathartic and messy ending with wonderful layers of sound including cello, horns, and a singing saw. Market values high. I'm brighter now. 
that was Andy. He did the songs. Yeah, the the trumpet player. We had, we had two guys, but one of the guys was actually he actually played on my last two Spiral records as well. Mark. Psychopedic knowledge of yeah. I did write that one for Terra Twilight as well. I think that could have. I think that one could have really worked well on Terra Twilight if had the opportunity to uh, to finish it. Yeah, birds fly like what is it? Uh, via compass or something. You know, you don't want to get you don't want to get too close to the sun, kind of thing. Yeah, it's pretty positive. Yeah, the yeah the the verses definitely have a a little more evil to them. I just remember it being, you know, putting down the tracks, the basic tracks, real smooth, and and then just overdubbing, you know, having a lot of fun on the guitar, you know, just being able to. I was coming up with some some fun little melodies and solos, which which I never really had the opportunity to do that in pavement because it was always we kind of had our pavement agenda. I think, I mean, when listening back to it now, it's like, I, it's way too long. I could have, I could have easily cut off a minute of it. I, that part in the middle where it's just kind of like, kind of, you're like, all right, there's a little bit, it goes a little bit too long for me, but I, I guess maybe at the time I thought, well, it's cool. With his almost mantra-like repetition of the phrase, the history of the river knows. History of the river is a sprawling and hypnotic number, accentuated by the pounding of primitive drums and the layers of squealing guitar. I might have had that song around Terrace while I too. Yeah, it's kind of like a, I guess it's kind of like a um, my stab at like a fall, like a later fall kind of mid to late fall kind of song but real kind of a rockin' version of one. And then, yeah, History of the River is just kind of about where I grew up, San Joaquin River. That's kind of all I say in the song, I think, is History of the River. knows the history of the river. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of more like an instrumental. I got to really fool around a lot on the guitar, and, you know, that was kind of my pavement trademark is squealing guitar (laughs) with a little, but with a little melody in there. Yeah, it's just kind of a, a cool, rocking, repetitious kind of tribal, yeah, thing. 
Yeah, I like I like those kinds of songs, you know, that are just kind of repetitious and you kind of make up the space in um, you know by melodies and stuff. Following History of the River is the indie rock gem Doping for Gold. of this track is the vocal delivery and the songs that Camberg contributed to Pavement. The vocals are at times low in the mix and include some sort of vocal effect which is great and works for those songs but on all this sounds gas and in particular this track the vocals are up front and sound especially confident. Well maybe it was because Pavement we just kind of did in one take and I probably did more than one take. Uh, and I also was probably really, ha- you know, confident and happy and, and, uh, everything just seemed to kind of, you know, flow. Maybe that's, maybe that's why a lot of stress with Terror Twilight and this was, yeah, this was great. You know, I just, I would, it was a five minute drive from my house and I was around my family and it just felt familiar. And, uh, it's kind of funny that, uh, the, the title definitely uh, come around to be this, uh, <laughs> the doping scandals and stuff. You know, I, I, I don't think I even thought about that when I, when I made up that title. I think it was more about like the kind of gold rush. It was kind of more of a California gold rush. You know, there's a lot of themes in the, in the lyrics about California and not really the old gold rush. There's parts of the old gold rush, but also the, the new gold rush. of at, the, at that time, it was the first internet kind of boom, San Francisco. So you saw all this new money and all that kind of stuff going on. So maybe that had to do with doping for gold meant a little more about that than actually the Olympic scandals. Much like he had done in the previous track, another highlight of Doping for Gold is Camberg's great guitar squealing that at times is very reminiscent of television. A friend of mine actually was the first person who kind of told me that my records kind of sound like television. That This friend of mine just, for my Doris and Dagger records, he was like, man, that sounds like television. What? You know, I was like, no one's ever told me that before. I mean, yeah, it definitely seeps into whatever I play. And that's the kind of stuff I was really influenced by. 
television was huge. Post-punk, uh, you know, Iggy Iggy and all that stuff was like, became kind of my Bible. Solitaire is a loose and catchy number that, like many of the tracks on this record, benefits from its multi-layer of sound. It's cluttered, but in such a good way. It's the type of song that's meant to be listened to through headphones. Yeah, that song kind of was just kind of a fun little, like, funky little thing I made up, and I I, I don't know if the... I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think I just strung a bunch of words together and... Uh, kind of made it, it, it it's it's probably a lot more of a pavement type song than than some of the others you know where i kind of just strung things together to make it sound cool that song actually i made the, i've made the most money ever on that song i mean from a tv commercial it, it was it was ridiculous it was i made a ton of money from this oh shit what was it called it was uh that beer um Labatt's beer, that Canadian beer, but it was only shown in like Buffalo, New York. That's back when they would pay. That's back when commercials paid, TV paid. They don't, right? If I got that now, it would be like $500. Maybe, maybe $500. <laughs> As Solitaire nears its end, the song segues into the short instrumental, Blue Sun. It's a track very much in the vein of the short transitional snippets that Pavement would sometimes put at the end of their songs, such as the Wounded Kite and J versus S sections on Trigger Cut and Shady Lanes. Well, Blue Sun was actually the actual demo. It was, it was, I, you know, I have, I had like demos for Terra Twilight and, and for Always Sounds Gas. And I, I would, I would just kind of make up these little, you know, one minute kind of songs, kind of like Guy by Voices or whatever. And that was one of them. Yeah, it's just this kind of soundscape. I actually had this in this idea of doing like a, a soundtrack. You know, I really like that record can soundtracks and uh, I always envision doing this fake soundtrack record where I, where there's like the, the movies are actually fake. My songs go to these fake movies. And, and that was like, I guess that was the idea for blue sun. You know, it was like a song from the, from the movie blue sun. 
As all this sound's gas nears its end, the record transitions from the weirdness of Blue Sun into the misty-eyed sincerity of Monkey Heart and the Horse's Leg. combination of cello, sustained guitar notes, and a thoughtful arrangement, it's through this song that Camberg really exemplifies his progress as a songwriter. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, with some of these songs on this record, they're, they're actually like kind of thought out songs, whereas, you know, in the past I would just kind of put things together and this is actually like treasured silver bank or it's not just verse chorus verse you know it's like there's actually like some it's like more of a i guess a traditional songwriting way of doing it like uh springsteen or something or and i that song really i, I kind of was starting to get into springsteen and I, I tried to stay away as long as i could and then i was just like all right i was the same way with like punk rock you know like i couldn't stand the dead you know i couldn't stand uh, i mean i like I still like the Beatles, but I couldn't stand like, I didn't really like Neil Young. I didn't like, uh, hated Led Zeppelin. Yeah. There was these kind of restrictions to, um, what kind of music you could like. And then, you know, and then you find out that, uh, you know, Greg Ginn from Black Flag, his favorite band was the Grateful Dead. You're like, wait, what, what? (laughs) So then you kind of started, Oh, okay. Well, I'll listen to that. Maybe I, maybe I should listen to it. And, uh, you know, Neil Young, I never, I never really liked. I mean, I wasn't against him, but I just thought it was classic rock and ended up my girlfriend at the time, her parents really loved Neil Young. And, and, uh, so they bought us tickets to go with them when Sonic Youth opened. So we went to this big state, this big like basketball stadium and, we watched Sonic Youth play. It was, you know, everybody, all the people around us were all like, oh, boo, boo. And, <laughs> and then Neil Young comes out and basically does the same thing Sonic Youth did, but like way better. And then, I, and then the, a light went off. I was like, whoa. Like, and it just took me, went back in time and just rediscovered it all. And, and you know, it's kind of like at that point in my life, I was like, I'll listen to anything. I think I just, I wanted to write kind of a Springsteen type song and, um, you know, lyrics are about like, you know, this friend of mine, I grew up in high school, he had this girlfriend and she died early, breast cancer and stuff. And like, 
just kind of it was it's kind of a sad little song about about the old hometown you know like like bruce springsteen would do i guess yeah it was just kind of come coming out for some reason it was those kind of songs come out every once in a while for me Within the entirety of the Preston School of Industry catalog, the song that has received the most repeated listens in the Walburn household is the soaring pop gem, The Idea of Fires. I mean, it's got everything one could want from a Spiral Stairs song. Catchy melody, concise arrangement, confusing and cryptic lyrics. Much like he did in Fallen Away, bassist John Erickson shines with his very cool sort of lead bass riff between the verses. But the real sweet spot of this track, and for which one could really make the case for Camberg being one of the best writers of indie rock hooks, is the section of the song in which Camberg sings, You Don't Know What I Know. I think I have a lot of no's in that record. <laughs> it's one of my it's one of my pet peeves, you know, like in a song I hear when I I hear someone saying I know and you know and we know and then I listen to this record and I'm like, man, there's a lot of no's in this record. <laughs> but yeah. 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 Idea fires. Yeah, it's it's uh I don't know how I wrote that. I mean, it was, it's got a really great melody and uh, kind of has these like minor chords. And I don't know how that, the lyrics I can, I think are kind of put together, you know, like it's, I don't think I had like a real idea of what, what I was trying to say, I, but I think I kind of just strewn a bunch of words that sounded, sounded good together and kind of made it make sense. <laughs> um, I used to always love singing the lyrics "Optometrist to the Stars." Had it lucky with tarot cards. I always thought that was one of my greatest lyrics of all time, though. But yeah, the it's got that. Yeah, it's got a great melody in there. We played that song a lot over the years, but we we didn't play it the last two tours. We we haven't played it, so yeah, I'd like to break it out. I think I actually had that song around the time of uh, Terror Twilight as well. Again, it's just kind of a blur. We did it pretty fast, and I had these like kind of session guys, you know, who basically could play what I was envisioning, and 
and all that went really fast. And then I just kind of had to overdub the guitars and, and, you know, bring in people to do the hard parts. The last track on all the sounds gas is the slow burner. Take a stand. It's a song that builds and eventually becomes this beautiful mess of raggedness and triumph. probably just fooling around you know, on the acoustic guitar and kind of just came up with the chord structure which is basically the same four chords um and they just kind of started singing over it and kind of made up the made up the lyrics you know i think i was i think when i, I was mad at malcolmus or something and some of the lyrics have to do with malcolmus <laughs> but uh probably more to do with my wife or something than Malcolmus, really. You know, I know Falling Fallin Away was kind of like we had a fight one day, and I think I was wrote that about her, but um, Take a Stand, I think, yeah. yeah. It was also about myself, you know, taking a stand and kind of going off on my own and and uh, and uh, being confident. And the song, I, I, it was it's like seven or eight minutes long, right? Um, I think the original version is about 15 minutes long. I think we just cut we cut it. As Take a Stand ends with the twinkling of piano keys and studio chatter, a short silence is followed by the hidden title track, which, like the album title, is a nod to the Beatles, specifically to their song Her Majesty, the hidden track on their final album, Abbey Road.
there was that was the Beatles influence, the Beatles reference, and uh, it's just, it's like a secret song, you know. What was the one, what was the Beatles one called? Her Majesty or something. Those people don't get that far. I remember people going like, "Oh yeah, I used to always turn off the CD after take a stand, and then all of a sudden one day I was just I just let it play, and I hear this song, and I'm like, whoa, what's that?" Much like they did with his previous band, as well as former bandmate Stephen Maltmus's self-titled solo record six months before, the great independent label Matador Records agrees to release All This Sounds Gas. I, I think the idea was to, like I said, I had all these songs recorded already, and I had already kind of thought, all right, well, you know, I'll send Matador the, this record, and I'll put out the EP on my own label, and and um, yeah, it was always going to be on Matter. You know, they did a good job promoting it, and you know, they they're still my label. Well, not for Spiral, but Pavement. They're going to be doing Pavement stuff for for the future. So, for the album art, Camberg had originally considered using an image that humorously paid tribute to the album that inspired the title of All This Sounds Gas, but instead went with a piece created by friend and artist Emily Clark. I actually have a mock-up of it still somewhere <laughs> where it's the it's the actual All Things Must Pass, and then I just kind of pasted my my photo on George and kind of paste, pasted some other things on there. <laughs> yeah, she was a friend of ours, and or a friend of mine in Berkeley, and uh, we had bought some artwork from her. And uh, she became kind of a family friend. And, yeah, I asked her to uh, to do the record and the seven-inch sleeves. And she had a she kind of had a painting already that she did, and I think she utilized part of that for the, uh, for the artwork. Yeah, she's become a pretty amazing artist over the years. If you look at her art now compared to what it was 20 years ago, it's, in, it's completely different. Beautiful, so beautiful. Matador releases All of This Sounds Gas on August 28, 2001, and following the album's release, Camberg would experience both the joys and difficulties in starting a new project. I think it was received pretty well, I think, well, except for Pitchfork. That guy there hated it, as he's hated all my records. That was their MO anyway, so I think, the, I, I don't know, sometimes these critics, they're, you know, they're like, very jealous that uh, that there even was a pavement, you know? And uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to sound mean, but I would, I kind of get that vibe sometimes, you know? Yeah, I was a little bit upset by it because it was kind of, it was, it felt kind of personal. And it was just like, but, you know, okay, I'm the easy target. Uh, but uh, I don't think my record's that bad. I think it's actually, you know, I think I've actually made a pretty good record. And, you're like acting like it's like I shouldn't even I shouldn't even be allowed to make a record kind of thing, and it's just like all right, but you're that kind of dude. Uh, I think we were just I think we were the easy target to do it, you know, because of Pavement's popularity, and I think I think a lot of people, some people didn't didn't like that. Maybe some people didn't like Pavement, and or maybe put it up against Pavement and. But but there were a lot of people that liked it, and I did get a lot of good reviews, and we played we played some really great shows. I mean, the whole uh, you know the the beginning of that tour was pretty stressful actually, because 
the guys that played on the record quit like uh, a week before we were supposed to go on tour. And uh, <laughs> so I had to scramble for like a, a band. And I think they kind of thought the band was going to be a lot bigger than it was. And they maybe they were going to make more money. And, and like I said, Andy played with Tom Waits. And I think Tom Waits, he like made way more money with Tom Waits. So I had to scramble for, I got this band, that band Oranger, who were friends of mine. They backed me and uh, went over to Europe and played some great shows and played in the States. You know, some great shows in the States. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun. Camberg would go on to release another record under the Preston School of Industry moniker in 2004, but in 2009 decides to retire the name and release all subsequent albums under the name Spiral Stairs. When I did the Spiral record, it was... The first Spiral record, it was, what, 2009? I think I did Monsoon in 2003 or four. Yeah, there was a gap. So I just... I think I just wanted something new. I also felt like my songwriting was... had progressed a, a lot more, where kind of the real feel, the songs on the real feel, slightly had... A, a little to do with the PSOI records, but I felt like it was a, I felt like it was a completely different kind of band, different songs, different different vibe, and um, and so I just kind of yeah, I thought oh, I'll just let PSOI be in history. <laughs> While discussing the breakup of the Beatles on the Dick Cavett show in 1971, George Harrison stated, "There's a time when people grow up and leave home." or whatever they do, and they go for a change, and you know it was really time for a change. And much like Harrison did in 1970 with the release of All Things Must Pass, Camberg made the most of the change that came with the breakup of Pavement in 99. And even though the project did not turn into the band he had hoped it would, and eventually dropping the name altogether, for Camberg, it was still a meaningful experience for which he is grateful. I, yeah, I'm still very proud of it. And, and it's, you know, kind of, you know, it's my first kind of foray into my own band and kind of stepping out of shadow of pavement, I guess. And, you know, I, it was kind of really hard thing to do, I guess. But once I started doing it, it's, it, it was a great experience. And, and I'm really glad I did it because, you know, I'm still writing songs and, still making records and but um yeah it's, it's amazing it's been 20 years crazy uh i got a funny story to tell that okay. just happened we decided to take a train from where my dad lived to la because it's usually around this time of year it's tons of traffic and um so we took the amtrak from san luis obispo to to la so anyway we're on this train like an hour in I go to the bar car to get get a bottle of wine. There's this kind of funny guy, you know, behind the counter. He's kind of like really kind of animated and stuff. He gives me my wine. I go back and he gets on the loudspeaker and kind of says, you know, he'd been on the train for 36 hours. And so he was kind of talking about everything. Like He came on a couple of times to say, you know, like we're running out of, we're running out of stuff. So if you want to come back and get some more stuff, come on down. And so I went down, they ran out of wine. He ran out of wine. So I said, oh, can I just, I'll just get these beers and, you know, it's cash only. So I open my wallet and all of a sudden he looks at me and he goes, 
I'm a fucking huge fan. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, you opened your wallet and I saw your name, but I knew it was you. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that's uh, that's cool. I said, I go, what band? And he goes, Preston School of Industry. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, cool. He says, I'm coming to see you in um, Portugal. I said, well, Preston School's not playing. He goes, I don't care. So anyways, like the drinks are on me. And so we talked for a while. He took my photo and like really nice guy. And he gets on the loudspeaker and, and kind of um, kind of gives his last talk to everybody. You know, it was a pleasure being on this train with you all and for the last 36 hours. And we, um, you know, we're rolling into L.A. and, you know, we're driving the whale bones home. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, cool. Thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Spiral Stairs, a.k.a. Scott Camberg, for speaking with me about this very special record. And you can hear this record and more from Camberg at SpiralStairsOfficial.com, as well as the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at InLovingRecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.